0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Health Conscious. I'm Peyton Eisner, joined by Christian Taji. Christian, how are you?
1: Peyton, I'm sad. I'm, I'm a little bit bummed out. I'm really excited for this episode. Don't get me wrong, because this is a unique and fun and different episode from anything that we've done in the past. Uh, but this is your and my last episode, which is a, a bit of a, a bittersweet moment. I mean, we've had a lot of great conversations um, since you know since August, September, when we started this. Um, I I think that, you know, just speaking for both of us, we've really enjoyed it. Um, and just speaking to our listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed it as well. We, we had you in mind, um, with every episode with all the reach outs and how we planned the the episodes and things like that. So we hope that you found these conversations both enjoyable and beneficial. Um, and we're so grateful for all of our guests that have joined us, that have been generous with their time, that have shared their experiences and candid insights with us. That's really what made this podcast happen where our awesome, awesome guests and listeners. So um, we're also excited though, for the next chapter of health conscious podcast, starting, um, in June, our colleagues, Jefferson acres and Milan Damani are going to, um, pick up the, the podcast with renewed cadence and renewed energy. So please stay tuned for, um, for the next season of health conscious podcast. Um, I'm definitely going to keep, keep listening. How about you Peyton?
0: Yeah, no, 100%. It's uh, it's weird. It feels like time's flown by. I know I reached out to you kind of at the end of last summer, wanted to pick up the mantle and kind of restart House conscious. It had fallen off for about a year. And uh, I had no idea the amount of amazing people we were going to get to talk to along the way um, and the a crazy amount of stories that we were going to hear. Um, today's episode might be the craziest of some of those stories um, by far. And, Uh, has a personal interest to me. So thanks to Christian for letting me indulge in this episode a little bit um, with a different topic. So uh, yeah, we're so bittersweet about this, but we hope that you'll continue listening. Jefferson, who you might've heard on the Cliff Barnes podcast, and Milland are two uh, pros. They're going to do a great job carrying this forward, and we're super excited about where it goes. But we have an amazing episode today, very different, uh, and we have Dr. Carolyn Day from Furman University, my alma mater. Uh, she's a history professor, associate professor of history there at Furman University. Uh, she received a Bachelor of Arts in History and a BS in Microbiology from Louisiana State University, very two very different fields. She then went on to get a Master's of Philosophy in the History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine from the prestigious Cambridge University and a PhD from Tulane University in British History. She is the Author of Consumptive Chick, a history of beauty, fashion, and disease, which focuses on material culture and the social space occupied by tuberculosis in the late 18th and the first half of the 19th centuries. We're going to talk to her a little bit about that book. It investigates the relationship between fashionable women's clothing, beauty, and illness in. Britain. Dr. Day is the co-editor of Peculiar Bodies, Stories and Histories series published by the University of Virginia Press and teaches in British and European history, as well as history of medicine. Her current research focuses on individual experiences, experiences of illness in the 18th and 19th century Britain. She's got three fascinating stories she's going to walk us through. So we'll head over to her now. All right, everyone, welcome back. We're here with Dr. Day from Furman University, my wonderful uh, former uh, undergrad institution. Uh, Dr. Day, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, how are you today?
0: I'm very good. Thanks for joining us. Now, this is a little bit different of an episode than our listeners are used to. And we're so excited for you to join us. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your background. And you do a lot of studying around the history of medicine. So maybe you can talk about what about that interested you to the point you wanted to start doing research and continue to learn more about it throughout the years.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So I actually started my life as a microbiologist. I never had any intention of being a historian. I, um, in my undergrad, uh, did a double major in micro and history, and history was my fun break from organic chemistry, um, as everybody always needs a fun break from organic chemistry. And um, again, like many people, I thought, oh, history—it's just a—it's a fun sort of side hobby. What can you do with that? Uh, And I had every intention of continuing to do clinical research and working in my. Uh, and in about my junior year, I'd sort of done a lot of the things that I would have done in grad school. I'd published my first paper, I had presented at a lot of national meetings, and, and I had actually solved the project I was working on. And I couldn't think of anything else I was as excited about as that initial project. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I'm very project-oriented. I need to be passionate about what I'm doing. And so I kind of pulled the rug out from under myself. I walked away from a PhD in Copenhagen. I walked away from a a job offer at Harvard. And I had no idea I was going to have to move in with mom and dad. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And so I worked for I decided to work for a year and a half in um, uh, science. And then I worked for a year and a half in history, just kind of trying to figure out what it is I want to do. And I'd always loved history, but didn't really think that was something I could kind of do. Um, And I was very fortunate. um, After about a year and a half uh, working in history, which I I adored, and it was a lot of fun. um, I actually got to be the interpretive program developer and historian for all the state parks in Louisiana. So um, it was kind of an amazing job. I'm definitely who you want on your apocalypse team. I got to, you know, I know how to flint nap, I know how to throw an atlatl, I can like run a fiddle, mean fiddle competition. So I also got to do lots of museum work and exhibit design. and It was really, really fascinating. And so I was ready to go back to school and um, I was fortunate enough to stumble across the history of science and medicine. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I can put my two loves together. I can put my love of science and my love of history together and do the history and philosophy of science and medicine. And a friend of mine convinced me I should apply to Oxford and Cambridge. And I was like, well, I don't know about that. Um, And I was very fortunate and I was I was accepted. um, And I ended up choosing to go to Cambridge for my master's in the history and philosophy of science and medicine, Um, not really knowing that having a degree in science and a degree in history didn't really prepare me to do the history of medicine. Uh, And so it was a steep learning curve. But it was fascinating to me. and It was something that Um, I really, really was very excited about. Uh, And then I actually was accepted to my graduate program as an Americanist. And because I had been in the UK for um, uh, some amount of time working on my master's, I really just wanted to be a British historian. Um, I'd always loved it, but I'm sort of the, um, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing when I decided to go to grad school. I kind of thought a bit like a lot of t- people that it, maybe it's like undergrad and you just kind of like change your mind and do things. I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I ended up having the opportunity and it took some doing but to swap from from um, American history to British history and so i ended up doing my phd in british history but my masters in like history of science and medicine and it was fascinating to me and and one of the reasons i had been so so struck Uh, And I've actually been sort of exposed to it in a pathogenics class actually in undergrad um, to this phenomenal story that had sparked my kind of um, interest. There was a, my pathogenics professor had given me, uh, or had told us all this story uh, and we were talking about um, uh, rickettsia. We were talking about typhus actually. We were talking about uh, like louse-borne diseases and typhus. And um, there's a cross-reaction between the agent that causes typhus and one that causes a, the, um, an antibiotic, uh, not an, an antibody reaction, sorry, um, between sort of that um, agent and the one that caused uh, the one Proteus OX. And so apparently this was used in um, during World War II by a Polish scientist or Polish physician who actually used it to fool the Nazis into thinking there was a raging typhus epidemic in a particular area of Poland, and it kept the Nazis out of this area of Poland and kept the Jews in this area safe for several years during the war and i just remember being fascinated by that story and wanting to learn more and not knowing like about this when i was a scientist and so these are the things that really kind of got me going um, when i decided to kind of move into history Um, and i just the great thing for me is that there's so many stories to uncover and i'm never bored i I'm, i'm constantly constantly finding like new things And I can remember being in my master's program and I kept stumbling across these references and this actually ended up being the subject of my first book. I kept stumbling across these references to tuberculosis being an easy and beautiful way to die. I was like, I'm pretty sure that is not at all what I learned in my microbiology class, (laughs) but this is not an easy way. It's frankly an awful way to die. Like, how is this possible? People are seeing this, how is it possible? So I was very interested in, do people buy into this idea? Is it some literary device that we see? Do people buy into it? Why do they buy into it? Um, and, And how do they use it to what advantage? And so I'm very, I've always been really, really interested in sort of the lived experience And so that's really want to know why, always want to know why, why do people do the things they do? Why did they sort of look at things in this way? Uh, And um, it's a very interesting sort of background and story and a very like complicated cultural phenomenon, but people do buy into it. And it's not because they were dumb and didn't know better, um, but it becomes sort of a way of coping. And so I I was really, really fascinated by the ability to kind of delve into the motivations and the ways in which people experience illness and the ways in which people like rationalize disease and the effects that that has on on the way in which healthcare is approached um, and the construction of authority and all of these sort of big things that are still an issue today. In medicine and in the way in which people sort of interact with the medical community.
0: Yeah, I know as a history major, those were all the things that made me excited. And I still love to learn about them. And there's so many small stories in the world that people don't know about or go uncovered that make such a large impact. And so I know today we want to talk about three of those that you that you've worked on. Um, and, and done research for. And the first one is really fascinating. And you hinted on it a little bit about tuberculosis being sort of a, a beautiful and nice way to die. And there's some research and stories you did about women who used to dress up to look like they were dying of tuberculosis. And that was like the fashion and beauty of of the time, and so it's kind of an interesting idea to think about illness being fashionable. I know we're all walking around today with our masks, and we try to make them all fashionable. But to dress up like you're intentionally ill um, is interesting. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit um, and the stories that go with that.
2: Absolutely. So this is the sort of the subject of my my first book, which is called Consumptive Chic, A History of Beauty, Fashion and Disease. Uh, And it really is about how um, it was sort of sexy to look like you were dying of tuberculosis. Now this sounds outrageous, right? It sounds like something completely bonkers and banana pants, but um, it's not so kind of far-fetched as we think about it. So one of the, the important things to think about is one, the understanding of the disease in the 18th century, at the end of the 18th and beginning into the early part of the 19th century. So this is a phenomenon that's really prevalent for about 80 years in terms of um, its connection to fashion. So it the connection to beauty actually continues beyond that. Um, many people, if anybody's ever seen Moulin Rouge, which is based on um, the operas, right? Like you've got La Boheme and La Traviata. All of these are based on um, uh, sort of historic, um, heroic heroine who is a fallen woman, who is redeemed through the suffering of tuberculosis and cannot, you know, she will sort of be recovered sort of spiritually, but she's not gonna, she has to die to do so, right? So there's this idea of redemptive suffering, but she's always considered attractive and beautiful. Uh, and so that kind of connection to beauty still continues. and it seems quite strange, but it, it is actually part of the disease process of consumption as it was called in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, and also a factor of the what was already established as attractive in women. So um, at beginning at toward the end of the 18th century in particular, uh, there becomes a fashion for like Slim ladies with pale skin. I mean, pale skin had been sort of, and rosy cheeks and red lips had been sort of a um, a beauty. um, uh, It's been considered sort of a hallmark of beauty for, um, you know for quite some time. It's also something that happens naturally in the case of tuberculosis. So women can get very, and not just women, men as well, but this is almost exclusively um, a female, it's presented in sort of as beauty in a female perspective, really by, particularly by the 1830s and 40s, it's it's feminized as a disease. Uh, And so, you have basically the characteristic symptoms of the disease as they were described in medical treatises. And this is really interesting because the medical treatises pull into this and the and the physicians are actually actually really kind of discussing this. You've got beauty literature that says, you know, even the doctor who knows that it is a fatal mark um, and it is a mark of ill health cannot um, uh deny that the the victim is enhanced in their beauty or you've got um uh, medical treatises like Rowland East's um to the two dangerous diseases of England um consumption and apoplexy and actually says in this medical treatise um that the victims uh, or that the disease seems to array its uh victims for the tomb with all the attributes of loveliness right and that's a medical description of a death from tuberculosis in the 1840s. And so there's this real sort of understanding that it enhances the things that were already established as attractive in women. So pale skin, rosy cheeks. It thought you had big dilated pupils because you're running a low grade fever constantly, what was called the hectic fever. Um, you had rosy cheeks, again, the hectic flush, which was the part of the Uh, sort of um, uh, the actual sort of result of that low-grade fever. They thought it made your teeth white and your eyelashes long and glossy and your hair glossy as well. And so um, if we think about things that were already considered attractive, pale sort of translucent skin was a marker of distinction and refinement. And so tuberculosis increasingly becomes intertwined with an idea of distinction and refinement. It also is sort of slapped onto this because it is ubiquitous in society. Tuberculosis does not respect gender, it doesn't respect class, and it hits people sort of at the highest echelons as well as the, the lowest. And so it was a way of creating meaning for something that was, that you had to sort of, create some sort of meaning for the death of like, and the wasting away of your young, beautiful, like child. And so um, it becomes a way of of defining distinction. It also becomes a way of creating meaning. Uh, And so even in families that had seen some of the worst um, cases, right, where it would run through one family member after another, so the Brontes, for instance, what we have, one, two, three, four, five of the Brontes, I believe, Um, uh, I'm trying to do this off the top of my head, so uh, five of the Brontes, I believe, die successively of tuberculosis. And Charlotte Bronte, while her sister Anne is actually dying of the disease, and after two of her sisters, no, three of her sisters and her brother had already perished of the illness, actually says like while her sister's dying of it and has seen the worst of it has seen the wreckage of it she wrote uh, in 1849 i believe um, that consumption i'm aware is a flattering malady so this idea that it is connected to beauty is very very sort of um strong and it's strong in the medical literature it's strong in the beauty and fashion literature And beauty was actually seen as a diagnostic marker for those women who were most likely to come down with the illness. So we would now understand what they were seeing as symptoms of the disease, but it's very hard to diagnose in an era before, um, you know, Germ theory, cultures, um, x-rays, the stethoscope, for instance. I mean, that's sort of invented in, in the early part of the 19th century, but it takes time before you can really like have diagnostic specificity for tuberculosis. And so they would, see people as being hereditarily predisposed, so that you didn't inherit the disease, but you inherited a predisposition. Uh And they had markers. So for instance, there was uh, a way you could tell that somebody was most likely to come down with it is that they were already attractive. And then that attraction could be enhanced as the disease progressed, although it was seen as sort of um, a marker for who's going to get it. Uh, And then we begin to see fashion begins to follow the dictates of disease. And so there are certain ways in which in the early part of the 19th century, they highlight some of the symptoms. So if we think about Neoclassical fashion. So Jane Austen, think Jane Austen fashions, right? Those sort of diaphanous gowns. Doctors are like, those are killing you. Women, you're not wearing enough clothes. You're getting like, you're going from a heated ballroom to a cold carriage in your diaphanous gowns. You're gonna drop dead of consumption, like that's it. Uh, But also there were certain ways in which the dresses were constructed that highlighted some of the symptoms of the disease. So for instance, one of the things that was considered a characteristic hallmark is um, you get sort of very prominent clavicles as well as your shoulder blades were always being described as as if wings, as a bird about to take flight. And so in the early part of uh, the 19th century, there's this real sort of um, lowering of the dress in the back that shows off those sort of shoulder blades. and in the fashion plates, you begin seeing it's almost drawn in. So in the front, they'll draw in the cleavage. And in the in the back, they also draw in that sort of posterior furrow. And so it's you're seeing it in the fashion plates as well. And people are railing about, they call it the disgusting fashions for like showing the backbone and like people are complaining about this. As you move into 1830s and 40s, um, so that increasingly the focus becomes more on um, corseting, particularly in like tightening the corsets. And by the time we get to the 1840s, it's not just about the waist that's being compressed, but the torso as a whole is compressed in the 1840s. and the 1840s is that height of the consumptive chic. Um, The dress is cut in such a way that um, women have sort of are forced with a stoop-shouldered appearance, which actually creates the same physical confirmation that happened in the disease process, and actually one that was thought to produce the illness. So physicians were like, this actually can cause the disease. Um, And so not only is dress sort of emulating illness, but physicians believed it could actually cause the disease. And so we see that women couldn't lift their arms above sort of a right angle. There's a really tightly compressed sort of both chest and waist, um, which sort of shifts um, toward the end of the 1840s as we move into the 1850s. And there's a real abandonment of the fashion when there is an abandonment of respectability associated with the disease. So in the 1850s, uh, the dominant narrative is that of fallen womanhood. So in 1848, Dumas Fies wrote La Dame aux Camellias, which was based off of the life of a real um, uh, uh, member of the Parisian demi-monde, Alphonsine Duplessis. She was a a woman who had a very brief but celebrated career as um, the most famous court on in paris and she dies of consumption and she said you know i have one of those diseases that will never relent um i shall not live long but i i i vow to live more than sort of others uh i, v- I vow to sort of cram it all in and she was so famous that when she died there was an auction of her belongings and Charles Dickens actually went to Paris and attended the auction of her belongings. So people knew about her. Well, she becomes immortalized as this character in La Damo Camellias that then becomes the characters you're familiar with in La Bohème and La Traviata. She is the inspiration. And so when they start, when tuberculosis gets associated with prostitution and fallen womanhood, it's no longer a respectable indicator for women of the middle and upper classes. And so almost overnight after 80 years of like doctors pushing back against it, dress reformers pushing back against it, people complaining about it, almost overnight it disappears as a fashion, um, which is kind of fascinating.
1: Absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting how people try to grapple, come to terms with the disease, both in terms of like coping, making sense of it um, just with their limited view of, 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 of it's just such so so interesting so thank you for sharing this i'm sure this is news and interesting to to our listeners um so thank you so much for your detailed and um, description of, of your research and of the situation no here um no let, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your your second your second book um which has all of the elements of um affairs and different class uh, relationships and everything. Um, We would love to hear a little bit about that as well.
2: Certainly. So I'm actually now writing um, my second book, which I didn't think was going to be my second book. I thought I stumbled across this while I was doing research for what will now be my third book, but I thought it was going to be my second. Um, And I was in an archive and I had been traveling all around looking for letters related to this other project. And sometimes I knew when I would travel to an archive, there may only be like two letters and I've spent hours on the train and I'm like, you know, a lot of money and effort. So I started looking for other things in the archive. You know, tuberculosis is my jam. I kind of like it. Um, And so I was always looking for more things sort of related to it. Uh, And so I was like, oh, you know, is there anything else related to consumption while I'm here? And I stumbled across this thing that I mean, it needs to be a Netflix series. Forget, like, we don't need another adaptation of anything else. It is just like a rollicking good tale. And this is the thing people don't realize about history. We don't have to make up scandals, like the 18th century in particular, super scandalous. Um, and then people who who lived everyday lives, lived really exciting everyday lives and really tragic everyday lives that are, are really important. And, and, you know, if we think about, we only think about sort of the famous people or we only think about sort of these, these people that were aware of but i mean we are people going through the world experiencing our lives experiencing health and illness and grief and disappointment and dislocation and like COVID pandemic right and our stories matter just as these people who have sort of been erased from uh history in a lot of ways so i stumbled across this story and this basically it's all true which is amazing and i've had to like Cull it out of lots of different bits and pieces. And I found like pro- letters in private hands, and I'd like crawled around like bat infested churches. That was quite fun. Um, and like, you know, addicts, I got to get into the private house. So I, I get to do sort of really exciting things with my work. And so um, I stumbled across this story so that it's got a little bit of everything. There's like madness, there's revenge, there's love, there's consumption, there's all the things. There's a naughty vicar. Um, and so this takes place in the 18th century in uh, England in the southern part of England. and um, there's a wealthy gentry family. so they're sort of they're not sort of the top top top, they're not, Dukes and earls they're not the nobility but they're sort of they have a country house they're the kinds of people that you think of when you think of sort of um you know maybe you think about the bennetts um or they're actually better off <laughs> so but you're going to think about things from like pride and prejudice that kind of thing so this family um they have uh an elder son um, and and then two daughters so they have a son named william and this is the other tricky thing about this story everybody's name is William and Anne they like to name themselves William and Anne like the the parents name is William and Anne the son's name is William and Ann, the daughter's name is Anne and then the the naughty vicar his name is also William so I'll do my best to keep all the Williams and Anne's straight so There is, they have um, uh, their older son, uh, William, and uh, William is going to be the, like, they're so excited. He's going to take over the family. He's going to be sort of the next generation. He's going to inherit everything. They send him off to Oxford. He goes to um, become a lawyer. Um, He becomes a member of Grayson, so he becomes an Esquire. He is, comes back. Everybody's so proud of him. His, um, and he really interestingly connects with a lot of fascinating things in the history of medicine. So his family is very concerned about smallpox, and and smallpox is obviously um, uh, no longer an issue uh, for the most part in our world. I mean, there are there are things in freezers uh, around the world, but it has been the only disease that we have actually been able to eradicate through um, vaccination. But in the 18th century, before Jenner figures out the vaccine, earlier people had figured out Inoculation, which is using the live smallpox virus to induce immunity. And this there were a very famous uh, group of inoculators in England called the Sutton family. And Daniel Sutton is sort of the son he takes over from his father. And Daniel Sutton at the time in um, sort of the 1760s is the premier inoculator in basically the country. And um, his father's really interested in this. And so he actually, he has a um, uh, opportunities to inoculate his son in the neighborhood. And he's like, nope, it's not good enough for my heir. And instead, he takes his son to London, and he has him inoculated against the smallpox by London's premier um, uh, inoculator Daniel Sutton, and he actually pays like 20 pounds to have this done. And in the 1760s, that's an extraordinary amount of money. So this is a very expensive medical procedure. Now, William um, uh, gets back after his smallpox inoculation and his recovery, and he goes back to Oxford and he ends up sort of finishing up, graduates, does all the things. And William falls in love with a woman that he wants to marry. And apparently his mother did not let him marry her. Now, according to everyone, um, this is what drives William mad. Now, we know that this is not a case of mental illness, but in the 18th century, it was completely understood that grief and disappointment, um, particularly in love, could lead to madness. So William actually ends up going mad and disappears from the record. It's very interesting because um, he uh, was beloved and they kept trying to figure out, uh, like, what can we do? What can we do to kind of get him to stop being insane. And uh, eventually he is disinherited by parliamentary decree in favor of his sister, which you have to be fairly far gone to be disinherited as a man in favor of your sister in the 18th century. So there's this one sort of sideline of what's happening here and really trying to recover what happens to, to William. It's been really, really fascinating because. That's a was considered a shameful thing, and he disappears from um, the, the narrative. Like, they just he's gone, they wipe out, they don't save things. And I've been able to sort of uncover with doing some research and finding things in like private hands, some letters in a private estate uh, that are not in an archive anywhere. And one of the things that I found is that. Many people within his family believe that what drove him mad was his inability to marry the woman he loved. So even the family buys into this. I also stumbled across Um, uh, some evidence that it's possible his family at least considered committing him to a private madhouse. Um, And the private madhouse that they thought about committing him to was one that um, by 1810 was the focus of one of the major inquiries into private madhouses in in England. There was a big inquiry uh, in the early part of the 19th century, and this one was held up as being just an awful institution. Now they went by but they it doesn't look like they ever sort of sent William to this private madhouse and they actually bought him a house and they set him up with servants and and he was sort of taken care of for the rest of his life privately by the family. Now the main focus of the of the book however is focused on the middle daughter. Her name is Anne And while uh, William is off in London getting his smallpox inoculation, his parents leave the daughters behind. They're like, no, y'all don't get the smallpox inoculation, just your brother. And so they don't inoculate the daughters. Now, Anne um, falls in love with the local uh, curate, um, uh, who she has known basically since she was a child. He was good friends with the family. His mother had been best friends with her mother. um, And um, his mother's first Husband was actually a member of this family, so so this wasn't just a hi. I'm sort of checking you out, and I like think you might be uh, you know a good match, and also you have money. Uh, but this is the way this gets represented. So William and Anne, while her brother and her parents are off in London getting the smallpox inoculation, they begin to sort of have feelings for each other. They spend time together, and um, they're chaperoned during the time, but they really are are. Uh, you know interested in each other and they kind of fall in love and at that point william's like i i don't have the financial wherewithal to be your husband so we're gonna have to like stop we can't like we are not of the same status and so they both go their separate ways. Uh, now, William is one of those guys who's just in love with the idea of being in love. He's constantly complaining that he he, he just wants to be a husband, like he just wants, it's being just disappointed in love. So he's just that guy, he's like desperate to be married and he just wants to be, he attends like the, the what he actually performs the wedding for his friend, and he's just talking about how jealous he is that he's not married, that kind of thing. So he's very, very like into the idea of being in love. Now, William's father dies, and when William's father dies, William inherits two houses in Bath, a thousand pounds of Bank of England stock, and some other property. So he is all of a sudden, financially really solvent. And he decides that this is the moment that he and Anne can finally be together. So he kind of provides an offer of marriage to Anne and she agrees. Now they're worried, however, about uh, her mother. Uh, Given that her mother wouldn't let uh, her brother, who was the favorite, marry the woman he wanted, uh, they're a bit concerned. And so they decide Uh, that they're going to run away and make a gretna marriage and so in the 18th century if you were under legal age if you were under 21 you couldn't get married without your parents permission um they had been uh, an act that was passed um called the Hardwick marriage act in the middle part of the 18th century that basically said you had to have your parents permission or it wasn't a legal marriage So, however, you could go to Scotland and get legally married without your parents permission. So this is why if you've ever read a romance novel, they always talk about like going to Scotland or going to Gretna Green. And Gretna Green is the sort of first stop across the border. And they call it being married over the anvil because you're usually married by a blacksmith. So this is why. So if you ever get to go to Gretna Green, this is why. So he hires a post-chasing four and they're in the southern part of England. It's a long trip to Scotland. Um, he hires a post-chase in four and Anne is going to sneak out of the house and they're going to meet and they're going to run away to Scotland and get married. So Anne actually, um, tries to sneak out, but her younger sister, Henrietta Mariah wakes up in the night and she says, she can't get out. And the next day everybody's gossiping. They were like, <gasps> you know, a, a coach, like a post-chase in four with the leather shades drawn came through the toll gate at midnight. Somebody's up to something. Gossip, gossip, gossip. Now, Anne and William are, un, they're just undaunted. They desperately want to get married. And so they come up with another plan. This time, Anne's going to go hide herself in a place that's just known to her. And um, then at midnight, they're going to meet in a place that is um, uh, known to the two of them. So Anne goes missing around supper time, and Her mother, like, notices and sends out a search party. And then she goes down to the vicarage. And she is just horrible to the vicar. She's very ugly to him. And she talks smack about his mother and he's like, how dare you? And he basically accuses her of only being interested in the money. Now she storms off in a huff. Eventually, Anne is found hiding in the shrubbery on the family estate, as you do, and her parents are determined to prevent this match. So what they do is they take her and they lock her up in a room above the porch for five months. So she is incarcerated in this very small room. I've actually been into it. The house is no longer owned by the same family Um, and it is in private hands, but I got permission to go in and it is a small room. It's only about six and a half by seven feet. There's a large sort of plate. There's a large window on one side and there's two little like trefoil windows on on either side. There's a small brazier. um, So you wouldn't have a, a real fireplace to keep it warm Uh, It's not well insulated. It would be very, very, very cold in the winter. Now, at some point during her incarceration, she takes a diamond ring and she writes, Remember Anne in the window pane. And this window and her prison overlooks the church where her, like, you know, love would have been working and that kind of thing. Now, after five months, she's legally of age and her parents can't keep her locked up anymore. And so they come and they give her a choice. It's the money or the vicar not actually the choice they give her her father comes to her and says you can go with your mother mother tomorrow and this names this other family estate and be damned or stay here and go to the devil those are the two options she's given so she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't and her parents have not been nice to her so she picks love now they toss her out into the street with only the clothes on her back. And she. this would ruin her reputation, right? They're, this would completely sully her reputation. She goes down to the vicarage and she knocks on the vicarage door and the vicar sets her up uh, with uh, a chaperone and William pays a hundred pounds for a special license so they can get married. Now, um, they end up um, getting married a week later in front of the full congregation in the church that's like 500 meters from her parents' front door. And the guy who performs the ceremony is her parents' nephew-in-law, so like, People in the town are on board with this actual marriage and and are not necessarily on board with her parents. So they go off on their honeymoon. They settle down. Things are great. So fabulous. We have like love and like there was some stuff, but you know, happy ending, right? Well, I work on the history of disease, so I wouldn't have stumbled across this if there was a happy ending, unfortunately. Now, and then the coughing starts. So when Anne and William got married in uh, February of 1770, no, in November of 1770, they're married. When they get married, um, William describes Anne as already having an ill, deep, hollow-sounding cough. Um, and she just keeps getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And so he bundles her up and he takes her to bath to meet with a doctor. And the doctor's like, it's going to be fine. It's just a seasonal thing. If she does these things and takes these treatments, by the spring, it should be taken care of. So they're like hopeful. They're like, okay. And they settle down into domestic bliss. But Anne just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so he sends back to bath and the and the doctor sends the apothecary. Um, so think of that as like the pharmacist. He sends him to come check in. The, the apothecary takes one look at her. and is like, oh no, you need to take her to bath now. And so he bundles her up again. And he takes her to bath. And when, um, and this is like January of 1771. So they're only married, you know, a couple of months at this point. Um, The doctor takes one look at her and is like, she's not going to make it. Now, the doctor then takes it upon himself to write her family and say, look, your daughter's going to die. You should probably come see her. Now, we don't have the doctor's letter, but we do have the father's response. And her father writes back and he says, I'm terribly sorry to hear she is unwell. But if she hurt us all with her bad behavior and we did everything we could to save her, I'm sure she wouldn't want to see us anyway. If our wishes for her health would be of use, she has them. Your servant, William. I mean, that's pretty cold, right? Now, she that letter comes and she dies two days after that letter. Now, this would be an amazing story from a historical perspective if it ended there, but it doesn't, because her husband is mad. And William writes her mother and says, Madam, my dear wife, your daughter is dead. Notwithstanding your implacable resentment you shall have to answer for what you did to contribute to her end. He then starts an 18th century social media feud with her family and uses her illness as a form of revenge, basically, because, you know, who is at fault for causing illness is something that we still kind of think about, right? Is it the patient's fault? Is it the individual? Is it lifestyle? Is it something outside? What is it, right? So the social uses of illness um, are really still important themes that when we think about sort of the ways in which money is prioritized for research or the ways in which money is prioritized for other kinds of things, social programs to affect kind of public health. So, um, so it's a really kind of important kind of um, component. Well, William takes it like a whole nother level. So he takes out an advertisement in the newspaper. And he says he is preparing for publication the true story of how her parents brutalized her, broke her constitution and basically murdered their daughter by causing her illness. Now, this is completely in keeping with the understanding of how tuberculosis worked in the 18th century. And so people would totally buy into this. They're like, oh, no, that makes perfect sense. Now, her parents are are fairly wealthy and they are able, uh, they probably threaten him. We don't know. There's no record. But they somehow stop him from publishing the book but he's undaunted. He takes another advertisement in the newspaper. And he says um, that it is a tale of uncommon parental barbarity that is of too horrid a nature for the general ear. And that the delinquents will be have to be left to heaven and their own consciences from which they cannot be protected by wealth, obscurity, or flattery. Some serious shade being thrown there. He says though, that his wife's reputation can be restored by the circulation of her story in manuscript form. He then writes a hundred page handwritten narrative detailing their like the charges against him, pushing back against those like leveled at his wife, leveling his own charges against her family. So it's this amazing kind of tale that obviously it's from one very specific perspective, but all of the corroborating evidence so far, and I've been able to corroborate lots of parts of the narrative, seem to uh, side mostly with William's charges rather than with the family's pushback. So it's very interesting. Um, And it's been quite a lot of fun to write and trying to really uncover because Anne in particular was wiped out of the archive like she is never mentioned again. So how do we recover the life of this woman who, I mean, she had meaning and value and just because like she transgressed um, what her parents wanted, um, shouldn't mean that her story should not be told. And so it's been sort of really fun uncovering and recovering. Anne, and particularly also her brother, who was also wiped out of the archive because he went mad. And so to to recover the the lost voices of those who have um, illnesses and disabilities, I think are really, really a a valuable contribution to like what I get to do. And also it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. It's a pretty interesting detective uh, story there.
0: Well, and you were right that that is like, right. I'm ready for the, the Netflix television show. Tell um, me
2: like that wouldn't be, well, here's the other like little juicy bit of that. It's even better. So there is a possible, not a definitive, but it's really quite interesting because as I was reading about um, the my my vicar, uh, he comes off as a little like social climbing sometimes and a little like obsequious. He's like... And and he's also pseudo related to the family, but not really. And I had to, and he also thinks he's a good poet, which is like the worst. He wrote like a 200 line epic poem on the occasion of a wedding, which is a terrible poem, but really fascinating because he gives us descriptions of the actual wedding guests. So we have descriptions of Anne, who there are no pictures of her. There's nothing of her. It's gone, right? And so he actually describes himself as well. Uh, But I, I kind of got a little like Mr. Collins feel from it when I was reading some of this stuff. And it turns out that the daughter who inherits everything is hooked into Jane Austen's circle. And so Jane Austen knew this family and would have been familiar with this particular scandal. Um, And we do know that she kind of wrote from things that she knew. Uh, And so I'm not making a claim that he is like the inspiration, but it is quite interesting. He is labeled as this fortune hunting vicar. And it's interesting because all of the evidence seems to point that he really wasn't a fortune hunter. He settled 2000 pounds on her And he gave her an annuity. Like when her parents cut her off, he made sure she was provided for. Um, Even after he remarries, he doesn't try to get that money back for like a decade. Like you know, and so it's really the the evidence seems to suggest he wasn't just a fortune hunter. He wasn't a fortune hunter. Uh, But after he leaves the area, her parents sort of take control of the narrative. And so he goes down. She she's like this foolish like woman who falls prey to a fortune hunting vicar, which is like you know this thing. Um, but the, the truth seems to be something quite different, which is really interesting. Um, so it is, uh, it is intriguing that, um, we, that it's likely Jane Austen at least knew this story and this scandal. And so, um, for instance, this family in the, uh, collection of Jane Austen's letters in the index, they talk about it and they're like, and the, uh, and the middle daughter fell prey to like a fortune hunting vicar, And like, that's just it. Like, that's all that like, he's just it's just written away that way. Um, so it is, uh, I think it would be a, a, an amazing uh, tale. Um, so, you know, and something that we don't actually get very often. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, and it's amazing how in history, little things connect to the large things, um, but you miss them a lot of the times. And I, I think that's important for a lot of people. Um, I know we're winding down towards the end, but there is one last story that I think also Mike could fit in a Netflix documentary, um, especially with the renewed interest around the crown um, and the British monarchy. And that revolves around King George III, known as Mad King George, during the American Revolution period, uh, his daughter, Princess Amelia. Um, And so if you wouldn't mind running us through that one really quickly, I think it's fascinating um, and always exciting to hear.
2: No worries, well, I'll, I'll give you a little brief one. So that was actually the book I was trying to do research for when I stumbled across the Anne and Williams story. Um, and so Princess Amelia is the youngest daughter of King George Third. She was born the year the American Revolution ended. She was born in 1783 she dies in 1810. Um, and she was uh, supposedly his favorite child. She also was a full tour de force sassy pants individual. She, knew what she wanted and went after it. Uh, and when I say she knew what she wanted and went after it, she went. what she went after was a man by the name of Charles Fitzroy. She was desperately in love with one of her father's equities. Um, and they carry on a relationship for likely about um, a decade before she dies. So they are together for quite some time. Um, there is a lot of question over whether or not there was a secret marriage or not. And that's one of the, the you know, she definitely started close, like ending her letters um with uh amelia fitzroy she started signing herself that way and she definitely much of her letters are really concerned with the idea of um Uh, trying to get a legal marriage. Uh, And it's because the Royal Marriages Act's prevented, that was passed by her father actually, um, after the bad behavior of several of his brothers as well as some of his sons. Uh, And the Royal Marriages Act simply says uh, at the time that any member of the royal family had to have the permission of the monarch to marry. It's been adjusted so it's within certain degrees of like, um, so obviously William and Kate had to have the queen's permission to get married because they are sort of in the direct line it's a certain number of degrees as did um, Meghan and Harry right so they had to have the direct permission from the monarch to marry um, and so the problem of course is that King George had repeated bouts of madness um, there's a lot of sort of discussion and new scholarship on like what possibly was the cause of that Um, It's being revisited now, which is quite interesting. Um, And he had these repeated bouts. And because she was his favorite, his family was not willing to upset him. And the idea of her marrying and going away, they were like, no, we just can't bring it up. So there's this open secret that she's carrying on this affair with Charles Fitzroy. Um, But she is also herself an invalid. And she spends close to a decade of her life suffering. Eventually, she dies likely of, of tuberculosis. but we don't know. I mean, in none of these cases do we really know what people died of. And that was a really hard adjustment for me um, when I became a historian of medicine, because I really want to know what it was actually as a farmer microbiologist. And they're like, it doesn't matter what it was. And I'm like, no, but oh, okay. Uh, And so that was a really hard thing for me to sort of change my perspective on, because what matters is what people believe it is. Um, because that's the way that they're gonna interact with the world, with the disease, with all of these things, the treatment profiles, which is true even now, right? The ways in which we think about diagnosis and treatment, um, it's based on what we think is the diagnosis, but sometimes that's not actually the diagnosis, right? Or we don't have a diagnosis and the power of a diagnosis is really, really um, key in um, people's sort of psychological state but also in the ways in which things are mobilized and um, uh, treatment is sort of um, determined. So the thing about Amelia, she is sick for close to a decade. And I was really interested in what is the experience of being an invalid? Yes, she is a princess. So everybody's like, well, why is that important? She's a princess, she has access to everything. In some ways, yes, but in some ways she actually doesn't. And that's really interesting. She is at the mercy of the political kind of um, uh, world around her. So she actually has less control in some ways over her own health and illness and disease course. And she really believes that her inability to marry Charles Fitzroy is actually what's killing her. And it comes through in her letters really, really strongly. She's also it's very interesting to think about i'm very intrigued about the way in which illness is performed. Um, if we think about all illness is performative in some ways um, and and what I mean by that is not that it is fake, but that we express our own illness differently, depending on our audience right so even if it's like you just have the flu or you have anything, right? Um, if you're calling your mom, you're usually like, mom, it's the worst, please take care of me. Like, And then you're like, oh, oh, but like, I'm gonna downplay it over here at my job. I'm like, oh no, it's fine, I got it. I'm like, but you know, so we, we express our illness differently depending on the audience. And that is really true in Amelia's case. And it's really fascinating because depending on who she's talking to, depends on how she downplays her illness or not. So she's very careful to not upset her father. And so she's constantly downplaying like the pain. She has to have these really horrific procedures. She has that, um, that are, uh, deeply painful and there's not really, uh, anesthesia. So there is no anesthesia. So she has, um, the, uh, application of what are called Seton's that are put in. And these are, um, uh, so they sort of, uh, Caustic the side, and she has these pains in her side, and so it's the, the idea of kind of creating a drain, but it's not a drain in the way we would think about it medically. So what they do is they they put these um, irritating sort of cords or fibers they could be cords made from like horse hair or like rubber and they put them through the skin and like some of the layers of um, the tissue below um, and they come out on either side and they're moved back and forth through to agitate drainage Uh, yeah, no, it's pretty awful. And they're just like put in and left in for weeks or months at a time. And they're constantly like in Amelia's case, she described that she's being caustic. So they're putting like really, really caustic stuff to keep that wound raw and to keep it ability to move. And it's incredibly painful, but she's sort of learned to live with the pain of it once it had been put in. And there's this argument between her doctors over whether or not they should be taken out. Well, if we take them out, then we're probably going to have to put them back in at some other time. She also doesn't like one of her doctors and she doesn't like him because she's her, it's her mother's doctor. And so she has a kind of a a, a increasingly contentious relationship with her mother, Queen Charlotte, uh, which people sort of Amelia shows up in Bridgerton. If you saw Bridgerton, right? Like that's the, the you know, the George, Amelia and Queen Charlotte. It's not an accurate representation, I want to make that clear, but of Charlotte or of George or of the Amelia situation. But there is that, that kind of contention that shows up there in Bridgerton, like Amelia is the one that's mentioned. Um, and so she actually Takes this real agency in her own care. And she basically, she had tried to get her doctor, Francis Millman, fired more than once. She didn't like him. It was her mother's favorite. And she was like, I don't trust him. So she actually goes behind her mother's back after trying directly to get him fired and goes to her father and basically takes complete control over her, her. illness. And she says, I want to be seen by these two specialists. I want this one because he is a specialist in this and I want this one who is a specialist in this. I also don't want those doctors to be allowed to speak to my previous doctors until after they have examined me and if we think about that in the way in which sort of people take control of their own health care it's a really amazing thing for a woman in the 18th century and the early 19th at this point century to be able to do that um and and her she even offers to pay for it and her father's like no no i couldn't have you pay for it she's like i'll pay for it i like but i'm asking for these things and so she gets new physicians in but there's this sort of like uh, back and forth because her physician Um, one of her physicians is also playing the courtier. And so in the end, it is Amelia's health that is subsumed to the Kings. And, um, And basically her physician says, look, I know this is gonna kill you, but you have to do your duty by your family. And he questions her duty and she writes the most scathing letter to him. She's like, how dare you suggest I would become the object of impertinent comment on. Yeah. And she just goes off on him and she says, you know, I know my duty and I have done my duty and I have sacrificed my life basically to duty. Uh, But she also like is quite sassy and also quite willing to break the rules when she wants. So she's constantly, you know, she talks about her feels in the 19th century, which is really amuses me. Um, She's like, you hurt my feels last night. She literally says that the quote is you hurt my feels. Um, And she also intriguingly, um, she bosses Charles Fitzroy around (laughs) quite a bit. She's very sassy. She's like, stop being so shy and awkward around my family. And she actually says that to him. And of course, he's going to be shy and awkward around her family, the king and the queen, and when he's carrying on a clandestine relationship with their daughter. Now, in the end, Amelia, unfortunately, succumbs to her illness, and about two weeks before she dies, she has um, a a mourning ring made for her father, and it has an initial, um, a lock of hair, and it says, remember me. It has an A on it. She tries to give it to the king, and he can't accept it. He just, up until this point, he thought she was going to survive, it was going to be okay, and he loses it, He just can't accept it. And at the time her death is what is given responsibility for causing his final break with sanity. Now, obviously that's not how mental illness works, but there is that circumstantial link. And so people at the time really said like, this is the thing, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, it was the thing. And and the timing is that he does about two weeks before she passes away, he kind of goes into this fit and he never sees her again. He also never acknowledges that she dies for the rest of his life. So he is declared, he goes mad. She dies in November of 1810. And and he is um, uh, not sort of um, mentally competent at that point. He doesn't even get to attend her funeral. Every time they tried to tell him she had passed away, um, he just wouldn't accept it and would go into more of a fit. But it's interesting. There is one letter that somehow he managed to write in that period between like, her death and like her kind of offering him the ring and it's the it's in the he's quite blind at this point as well I and mean, he's quite scratchy they also didn't give him access usually to pen and paper when he was in a fit and so they actually it, he actually starts off with like aren't i clever i found a way to write you Um, which is so poignant. And every letter up until this point from her father had been about, like, you just do what the doctors are going to say, like, you're going to get better, you're going to get better. And in this letter, he acknowledges, like, he's talking about the afterlife and her soul and God. And he is very much like, I think, in that point where he really does acknowledge that she is going to go. Um, the he never really recovers his sanity he um the regency is declared in 1811 and so his son rules he's still the monarch but his son is in is in charge from 1811 until his death in 1820 and for the rest of his life he never acknowledged amelia had died whenever would oh. bring it up he said no no she's not dead she's just visiting family in hanover mm-hmm which is just fascinating. Um, But yeah, Amelia is a really, really interesting individual. She is a woman who's trying to assert agency over her own illness, over her own life, um, the ways in which like, like, the loneliness that she expresses on being separated for her family, for treatments, these sorts of things. So there's lots of different themes that are are really um, things that we see in chronic illness today and in terminal illness and the ways in which she's trying to deal with this. And because of who she is, we actually have the ability to see that experience from the individual's perspective, from the family looking in, from the physician's perspective, and also from the public perspective. She's a public figure, right? So what does that, that gives us an access that we can't even get today. There's no way we could get access. There are, you know, HIPAA, privacy rules, all of these things, right? We would never be able to get that level of access to think about those themes today, but because of who she is and because of the unlikely survival of a a particular cache of letters. Um, Her private letters to Charles Fitzroy um, were saved by him after her death. And so they passed down through the family and eventually ended up in the Royal Archives, um, which are in the Round Tower at Windsor Castle. So I actually get to go to work (laughs) <laughs> our Windsor Castle every day to read princess letters. Um, so I'm just saying I'm pretty excited about my career trajectory. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. I'm not gonna lie.
0: Yeah, no, I don't think uh, many people can complain about uh, getting to go dig through the Royal <laughs> Archives at the castle. But um, well, Dr. Day, these have been great stories, I think, that have really set us up. And you can see how they might connect to things that we talked stigma around mental health and Um, You know, taking control of your own treatment when you think your doctors might not have your best opinions in mind. Um, So, those are great stories. I know you have one book out now that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the other two I think are coming soon. Um, So, where can people look at the book now and keep a lookout for the future ones?
2: Well, so my, uh, the first book, Consumptive Chic, is available. Bloomsbury is the publisher, but it's also available on Amazon. So, Consumptive Chic A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease just published with Bloomsbury in 2017. Um, the next book is actually gonna be with the University of Toronto. Although I kind of feel like I wanna write a popular version of it, the, ne- the Netflix version of it. So we'll see what <laughs> happens there. Um, and then the Princess Amelia book, I'm hoping to, I'm gonna finish up that second book and all the research is done for the Princess Amelia book. So it's just a writing thing. So hopefully in the next year or two, I'll get that one sort of uh, sorted and uh,
0: good to go. And so, yeah. Awesome. Well, I can attest that uh, the Furman History Department does very well. So people should definitely check that out. Uh, But Dr. Day, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about these stories. I know it's been super enlightening and fun.
2: No, thank you for having me. It was really a great time.